Howdy friends, welcome to Experience Design with Tony Dosat. I happen to be Tony Dosat. Now listen, before we jump into this week's conversation, if you are a UX designer that is having a hard time getting a job or landing an interview or even getting noticed, I made an online course just for you. It's the course I wish I had when I was out there trying to find work. So head over to HiredUX.com, H-I-R-E-D-U-X.com, and there I'm going to teach you the tools, mindset, and process you need to stand out above the crowd and get hired. Now then, with that out of the way, let's get into the interview. My guest this week is CEO of Substantial, a world-class product development studio serving a diverse set of clients from Fortune 50s, like Google and Amazon, if you ever heard of them, to emerging startups and social impact organizations. She has spent over 18 years leading large interdisciplinary teams and multi-channel projects. And it's my pleasure to introduce to you, Carrie Jenkins. Carrie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and joining us. My pleasure. I'm happy to be here. I want to start with something that we will connect on. Unbeknownst to you, and the listeners for that matter, I was also born in Louisiana and lived in Manhattan for a while. Wow. Where in Louisiana? I was born in Lafayette. That's where I was born. No kidding. (laughs) No, actually, sorry, sorry, sorry. I was not born there. I just have lived my formative years there. I always forget this. So I moved to Louisiana in second grade and was there until I left for college in 18. But I was actually born in Nashville. Uh, So I wasn't born there, but my mother's still there. My sister's still there. I am there at least once a year. Wow. Look at that connection we have right off the (laughs) bat. Little did we know. And now you're in the coffee capital of America, Seattle. I am. I must say I'm infinitely jealous because I am, you know, listen, I embrace that I am a coffee snob. I embrace it. So there's that going for us. Let's dive into something. You're the CEO of Substantial. You rose to the ranks very impressively. Mm -hmm. So kudos on that. What would you say is Substantial's mission statement? Substantial's mission statement is to create digital innovation and products that are high quality, purpose-driven, intentional, and put the users of those products first. And so what that means for us is that as technologists, we acknowledge the power we have in the current environment to create products that people use and depend on, frankly, Mm. you know, to live their lives. And we take that responsibility really seriously and want to put out trustworthy and ethical products. My follow-up question to this is, what is Carrie Jenkins? mission statement? My mission statement is to lead with uh, empathy, an ethical mindset, integrity, humor, (laughs) and generosity, and to have as many conversations as we possibly can about our responsibility as technologists, even hard conversations that we, we might not always like the things that get said and the things we hear, but to take that responsibility really seriously. What would you say that the out of, say, 10. What's number one? And if you can't pick number one, what are a handful of those responsibilities that we have? 
I'm sure I could pick 10. I think the number one is to really consider what our users need and what that means for their life. And so we might think our users need to buy something, right? For instance, if you're building an e-commerce product, but where does that need fall into the rest of their life? And what does that look like in the evolving landscape we have going on here from Mm. the world changing events even recently to just the rapidly changing world of technology, commerce, economics, and politics, frankly. So the most important thing for us to do is to put the user first. And that is not always as easy as it seems. (laughs) And this is important because 10 to even 15 years ago, technology companies in some respects could plead a little bit of ignorance and how fast things were going to change. So you might bias towards, for instance, capturing every piece of data you could on your user. And you might do that with very good intentions with that. Like this will help us to personalize the experience. This will help us to understand our users better and build products and features that will really speak to them and enhance their lives. But as the landscapes changed and your capabilities of what you could do with such data changed, in some respects, we got to pivot entirely our intentions around those rapidly changing capabilities. Mm. I don't think we can claim ignorance about that anymore, right? Things are changing and technology is only getting more powerful. And we've now had a couple of decades to watch how quickly these things change. And if we're going to build products, if we're going to create experiences that are really user-centric, we have to acknowledge that we're capable of having some strategic foresight about the implications of those products. To me, the reason why the show Black Mirror (laughs) is so terrifying is because we see the power of technology and how it's evolving and that that's not far off. It really isn't. You know, I haven't watched Black Mirror, but I know enough about the... (laughs) about the pop culture zeitgeist to know what it's about. I will say this. For me, I want to have a really optimistic outlook about what we're capable Mm -hmm. as technologists because I want us to be intentional and I want us to create the products we want to see in the world. Trying to quote Gandhi there, but it's really important that our outlook remain towards how we can make change rather than feeling like we are along for the ride or not responsible, or that this is a progress is a, you know, a moving train that we have no power to direct anymore. And that's particularly true for designers and engineers and strategists and leaders who really do have an ability to make a difference and make an impact. But because technology has sort of seeped into our life in so many ways, I think a lot of times people feel powerless to the direction it's going and scared, frankly. And so people who aren't in the product world, right? In my world, which is building technology every day, creating new experiences for people every day. People who are outside of that world are terrified. (laughs) They're terrified of losing their job and being replaced by automation. They're terrified of their data security. They're terrified of misinformation. And they're getting increasingly worried about the amount of time they spend on technology while being decreasingly able to separate themselves from it, right? Mm. It's basically a utility at this point. So I really do, you know, it's no knock against Black Mirror, but I want to make sure when I think about it and when I talk about it, that 
it's not all doom and gloom because the point of having these conversations is that we actually can change the path of technology. We can create products that are making our users' lives better without having the kinds of trade-offs we've seen in some of the really large technology products that have been released over the last 20 years. I really love that, how you take the optimistic approach and the positive approach rather than the alarmist look at how dark it could possibly get or is. I appreciate that. So thanks for the optimism. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, there's a million products out there and there's lots of them we could point to as being really uh, clear examples of unethical behavior or at least questionable behavior and bad decision-making for sure. But there's also lots and lots and lots of products, products we use every day that And I'm not talking about just social impact products. I want to be clear about that. I believe that if you can provide value to your users in exchange for them paying for that value, that's fair. I don't think there's anything unethical about that. When things get a little bit gray (laughs) is when we're giving something to our users, we're maybe not doing that in exchange from anything from them directly, but then we are monetizing that relationship in ways that are not entirely clear to them, right? That's when things start getting a little bit gray. And for me, I think people are seeing more and more how those relationships have played out, the kinds of monopolies and power structures that can come from large amounts of user data being owned by very few, frankly, Mm. large corporations now in the world. So I like to think when I talk about this, for every product that I am scared of, there's a million products I use every day, not a million, that's a lot, but dozens of products I use every day that I can count on that are consistent, that have a very straightforward value that I'm very willing to pay for and that do a great job, a very simple, elegant job of you know helping my workflow or making me more efficient or giving me access to a service or a product. So true and so important to keep in mind. Let me pivot a little bit. However, I think this might go really nicely with where we're headed. Let me quote something you said in the, uh, in the Seattle Business Magazine. You said, we could all be better about recognizing that the world we live in is both a product of millennia of learned behavior and a new frontier of enlightenment. Can you elucidate on that? What did you mean by that? Yeah, I can. So, you know, I'm a female CEO and I have been in the business for a really long time. And I feel a huge responsibility to be representative of my gender, of, you know, what underrepresented populations and leadership can look like, what our responsibilities are. And I get asked to speak a lot, in particular, about my path and what it means to be a woman leader. And one of the things that I've experienced quite a bit is the interesting dynamic shifts, as I think we've had a lot more discussion about what it's like to be a woman in the workforce in particular, but also for any minority in the workforce. Um, Some of that's me too. Some of that's just a lot more open conversations as more women have frankly risen in the ranks and are having open conversations about what it's like. The thing that I think we have to keep in mind is that just knowing, just hearing all of the stories from me too, just reading all of the articles and books there are about the unlimited, frankly, amounts of discrimination that have gone on for minorities and women in the workplace does not undo thousands of years of subjugation 
right? And we have learned that behavior as much as men have, right? Mm. So we are a part of it. We have our own implicit biases, right? That don't just go away because we are reading about things. And so when we're having these conversations and they're really difficult, and I think for women and men and minorities to come to the table together and talk about this, there has to be some acknowledgement that we're part of a system. This is a system that has been going on for a really long time. And no matter what our individual intentions are, we're working within a system and a system takes a lot longer to change than individual behavior. Let me pose something to you. By the way, what you just said was very impactful and very true. But I'm thinking about what we were talking about earlier about sort of the dark technology and how that is evolving and how in the future a lot of people are seeing that the danger there and course correcting or someone like yourself leading very optimistically into that and leaning into the positive side of that. Do you think it's the same relationship to these workplace or societal implications or systems that you speak of? Or are we seeing the dark and course correcting? I definitely think there's an element of seeing the darkness. And I think that's important. Right. So just like when we talk about the implications of technology in, built in an unethical manner or, you know, in a workplace that is not treating its workers fairly, we need to know that 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 that's going on and understand the situation. Right. So and that's always feels dark. Right. When you hear mm-hmm. about something that does not match up with your values. Like that's always a hard thing to hear. And I don't, when I say I want to be optimistic, I don't want to ignore the hard conversations. And I think that's true just for both the workplace discussions and what it's like to be, you know, in a less dominant population in the workplace, just as much as it is about what technology is and isn't capable of doing in society. So you have to have the the hard conversations where you say, "This this is what could happen if this goes wrong, or this is what happened to me or this is what I've seen throughout my career. The stories that we heard during Me Too were horrific. Not entirely shocking for any woman, I can tell you that. Right. But very shocking for a lot of men who didn't realize how prevalent those kinds of situations were. It's not dissimilar to hearing how technology has evolved over the last 15 or 20 years. Feels like maybe started around five years ago, but definitely got worse after the election, Cambridge Analytica, and a lot of very massive data breaches, people are starting to hear more of these stories about what can happen when technology is built with the intention of driving revenue and growth and nothing else. Mm. And so you can be optimistic, which I am, but it doesn't mean you close your eyes to the realities right, of what can happen if we're not present, responsible, intentional, and ethical. You're not Pollyanna, you know. (laughs) I'm not Pollyanna. Just like (laughs) blindly. Nobody would ever call me that. (laughs) (laughs) This really speaks to your, I don't know if it's your mantra or not, but something you talk a lot about, which is the healthy relationships, whether that involves employees, clients, or, you know, community partners. What does it take to have a healthy relationship great question. And this really does tie into that because I run a services company. We're consultants, honestly, right? We create digital innovation and products for other companies, mostly, although we do occasionally create products for ourselves. 
But in that environment, you could have a relationship where you are an order taker, right? Or you work with someone and you just let them tell you whatever you want to do and you do it. Or you could work in a relationship where they give you a bunch of trust and you go away for a really long time and you come back and you try to impress them with whatever you've come up with. We work in an environment where we're making product decisions every single day and we need our clients to be true collaborators with her, with us and partners. And when I say true collaborators, I mean daily contact in most cases to help make decisions to keep the product moving in the right direction and everybody pointing towards the core objectives. So our client relationships are incredibly important in that atmosphere, right? Okay. We have to have trust. We have to have the ability to be honest and transparent. We have to be able to have hard conversations. So relationships for us at Substantial are incredibly important. But if you zoom out to the bigger picture, what you're creating with any digital product is a relationship. Mm. That's what you're trying to do. And if people thought about that, I think a little bit more intentionally, I think it would probably inform their products in really good ways. So this is how marketing teams a lot of times think about their brand, right? Our brand and how we're perceived is so important. People don't understand that one of the number one ways a person interacts with a brand at this point is through a digital product. Mm -hmm. So your product is your brand. And because of that, everything your product does is building a relationship with that user. Every interaction, every micro interaction, every little delighter. Right? This is why user experience is so important and is so way bigger in its scope of impact than just thinking about which button do I click and, you know, where do I go from here, right? Yes, being intuitive is important and onboarding and support all these pieces, but the reason it's so important is because every single piece of that is building a relationship with your user. And you can either have a healthy relationship, which has give and take and an exchange of value for a fair cost and transparency about what the user is giving up in exchange for that value, or you can have a secretive, <laughs> right, relationship where you are monetizing elements of your users that they have no idea and don't really understand. And you can have it all hidden in some terms and conditions somewhere that they'll never be able to really unpack because it's written in legalese. And you can give something for free to them and pretend that it's really free while you actually make your money in some back door somewhere. Mm. And that's not a healthy relationship. And you may get away with it for a while, but eventually it's going to come, that cost is going to come back to you. And that's really why I think that the more we discuss the idea of brand and product and user experience and decisions that are really about the user is so important. You know, I rarely listen back to my interviews. I hand it off to an editor and then I publish it. There were some bombs in there that I'm going to have <laughs> to listen to again with this thing drops. I hope people are taking notes. Jenkins dropping the bombs. <laughs> That's some huge stuff. Yes, it's so true. Your digital product is your brand and everything in it forges a relationship or breaks the relationship. And each thing is piece by piece. There is a buzzword that is meaningful and is really having its day in the sun right now. And that word is innovation. Now, this is a question that I've asked several guests, and each answer is different. 
but I would like to also ask you, what does innovation mean? Yeah, I have a love-hate with innovation as well, and it is overused, so I understand why we kind of tune out sometimes when we hear innovation now, but for me, what innovation is, is problem solving. There's tons of problems throughout the world, and your ability to solve them is innovation. And sometimes you solve them with an idea that is massive and life-changing and a disruption of an entirely existent system. And that gets a lot of attention these days, Mm. right? Because we're in a sort of unicorn-centric world where companies that grow really, really fast on the backs of ideas that are changing existing systems, I mean, it warrants a lot of attention. They have a lot of implications across very large ecosystems that are worthy of attention and talking about for sure. But in my experience, the majority of the innovation in the world is actually happening in much smaller, more incremental moments, Mm, mm. right? It's much less disruptive because it's happening little by little over time. And it still can be really, really positive innovation in that way. You know, software, which is what, you know, my company is typically building is a living, breathing little critter. And if you're doing it right, it's evolving, right? We want our software and our products to live a life. And to do that, they need care and feeding. They need growth and change. They need to learn. They need all those things, right? So an unlimited amount of little moments to continue to innovate on your idea, on your product. And I think that's the really exciting thing about digital products. It doesn't mean it's going to be you know, this massive jump. I do think that if there's a negative side to the attention that's paid to disruption and our, you know, and large scale innovation is that it tends to make people think that they have to win in big moments, Mm. (laughs) right? That they have to, they need to scale to a billion users or even a million users. They need to be revenue positive in the shortest amount of time. They need to get to market in the shortest amount of time. And We've really biased towards speed at this point. And I think there have been some real trade-offs in the way we think about what innovation is and how you solve problems. Because when things are changing as rapidly as our environments are, you think about what the world is going through right now and all of the ways that everyone is trying to problem solve. But in particular, technology has been on the forefront of trying to solve the pandemic we're experiencing right now those innovations are going to happen over time because the problem is changing over Mm. time. And if we only think of problem solving as one moment, you know, I think we're missing probably large parts of how that problem is going to evolve. I completely agree. I have two more questions for you. One I've never asked a guest and one I ask every single guest. (laughs) So the one I've never asked any guest would be, who would you want to play you in a movie about you? Who would I want to play me in a movie about me? Uh, Well, okay. I probably could come up with a bunch of answers given time, but um, it is the five-year anniversary of Mad Max Fury Road. And... I just read a really stunning article in the New York Times about the making of that movie, and I just rewatched it. And me, like probably 99% of all women would choose Charlize Theron to play us in the movie. (laughs) Because 
she would do an insanely great job. <laughs> Charlize, that's a good choice for you. By the way, that piece was great about Mad Max Fury. Road. It was amazing, wasn't it? It yeah. was just it was so great to read that and then watch the movie again. The final question I have for you, question I ask every guest, which is what non-digital object or thing that you own or possess means the most to you or has impacted your life the most and why? That is a beautiful question. Oh, and thank you. <laughs> I'm like, how in the world do I answer that? What a gorgeous question. What non-digital thing, I assume this is not a living thing, right? This is a thing. I've had some living things answered. However, the intention of the question is that it is a non-living It is a non-living thing. I also find the object that you own or possess odd to associate to a human some people do however you know whatever floats their boat well i think you're gonna when you ask parents that they're immediately gonna go can i say my kids which right, is right, right. an easy way <laughs> and i do have a daughter um so if we were talking living things you know she'd be on there but i'm really struggling with this i this is a good question like what do i and i'm looking around like i have to uh, well okay i'll tell you and you can kind of see it back here okay it's not one thing but i do love books. I love them both symbolically. I love them, you know, their tactile feeling. Mm. I love their smell. I love bookstores. I love reading. So, and I have so much respect for writers. And so if that's not too much of a cop out, I'll say books. Not a cop out at all. I respect <laughs> <Okay>. that answer. <laughs> that's a really tough question. <laughs> Usually what happens is there's a massively pregnant pause and we edit it out. You know, we go through it. Okay. But I used to ask that in every interview I gave when I was in charge of hiring a few years ago at a company I'm not with anymore. And it's just very interesting to see how people react to it, how they think, um, if they do pause, if they talk through it, if they work it out in their head, if it's a personal yeah. thing or if it's a whatever. So thank you for that. And I liked yeah. seeing you work that out. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh gosh, that's tough. Carrie I'm Jenkins. thinking about that for the rest of the day. <laughs> Well, good. We left an impression. Thank you so much for being on the show and have a wonderful, wonderful day. Thanks so much, Tony. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning in this week, friends. Now, before you go, I want to remind you about the course I created for all of you UX designers trying to get a job out there. Be sure to check out HiredUX.com. And lastly, I'd like to give a big shout out to my guest and to my Patreon supporters, there's a link in the description to help me out on Patreon if that floats your boat. Anyway, of course, a special shout out to my executive producer, Brian Sullivan. Now, until next week, friends, I can't wait to have you back. Just stay curious. Experience Design with Tony Dosat is part of XD Media, LLC. All opinions are my own and do not reflect those of my current or former employers. 